0: Everybody and welcome to the Myo Minds podcast. I'm your host, George, and here at Myo Minds, we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. As always, I am your host, George, and today I'm here with Dr. Amy Aziz. Aziz? I've got it wrong. I'm sorry, Amy. <laughs> uh, Amy, first of all, Amy, I'll keep this in so people can know what a failure I am. First of all, Amy, can you remind us how to pronounce your last name, even though you just told me like 30 seconds ago? and then also how are <laughs> <all> you? Right. <laughs> yeah
1: I, I'm very well thank you not to worry it's I'm very used to it it's Iziski.
0: isiski sorry you literally, yeah. you literally told me like 10 seconds ago before we started <laughs> well here we are people I'm a failure. Um, I'm glad you're well Amy thank you so much for coming on today I have recently read your book and we will be talking about that um, as we go through but I'm, I'm so excited to speak to you um, a clinical psychologist it's going to be a very interesting conversation someone who has such a speciality in in what we're interested in here at My Own Minds and yeah I'm very very excited to kind of delve in I hope you're excited too.
1: Absolutely it's it's really exciting that you've read the book as well I think we're going to have a really good in-depth conversation.
0: I hope so I hope so this pressure's on pressure's on but I'll be I'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I guess uh, to start things off just to uh, kind of Learn a little bit more about you. I obviously, like I've said, I've read your book. So I kind of know your background based off of your little introduction at the start of the book where you describe it. But for the people listening, um, I guess my first question would be: why did you want to become a clinical psychologist? And also why specialise in sport?
1: Yeah. Um, so I decided to become a clinical psychologist when I was very young actually Um, so people can read into that uh, what they wish, Um, I uh, was probably uh, 14 uh, when I decided I wanted to be a clinical psychologist I can remember we were selecting our GCSE subjects um, and we were encouraged to think about careers and I think at that time it, it wasn't very well informed at all. Um, but i think on reflection um i'm sure it appealed to me and my unconscious world for a number of reasons mm. um hence it's stuck with me and it's um it's become a really good fit for me um i think you know, My developmental experience will have played into that. Uh, My my surname that was quite challenging (laughs) to say at the start uh, will have played into that because it's an indicator of my heritage. Uh, My grandfather was a Ukrainian prisoner of war and uh, there's been an understanding of trauma um, from a very early age really and the impact of um, my grandfather's route into the country and his Life. Um, and I think that's got to have played really in terms of my career selection. Um, and why specialise in sport? Um, well, <laughs> that that was entirely organic, really. Um, we were always um, a sporty family growing up. Me and my brother were both swimmers. Uh, both my parents, my mum and dad, were footballers. Um, and uh, we were always surrounded by sport. But when I went to university, um I was drawn to rowing um and I did that to to quite a high level um but um I was rowing at a time when I was studying my first psychology degree um and it you know I talk about it in the book in terms of my own experience and what I was exposed to um but It was that juxtaposition of studying psychology whilst being in a high performance sports environment where I was invited to become a lightweight rower um, that then exposed me to certain eating behaviors that I questioned a lot um, in that if they would have presented in the clinic, um, they would have been considered as disordered eating behaviors. Um, A lot of the girls would have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, And but yet because we were in a sports environment, it was it was okay, And it in in some circles, it was even encouraged because in order to make weight, you you had to engage in extreme practices. Um, So that that felt very uncomfortable. Um, Mm. And I think that meant that when i then qualified as a clinical psychologist i went back um to that university um and i said look i'm qualified now and if you've got any athletes that need help i'm i'm available for referrals and mm. and it's just developed from there
0: really mm, yeah and uh, there's a couple of things that i, I kind of want to touch on there and it's one one thing that i talked from your book which i found really interesting was how you explained because I know you were talking, I think it was about Luke Stoltman and his his um family as well, and how trauma can kind of have a knock-on effect throughout the family. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, like how that how that works, a kind of a brief overview? Because I, I found that so interesting.
1: Mm. Yeah, so um Luke, who's in the book, has um a Polish grandfather as well, who was a prisoner of war. So there, there's an area within psychoanalysis that looks at transgenerational trauma so how uh, a significant trauma such as the holocaust that happened two generations ago can still impact um, in second generation individuals Um, (laughs) because ultimately um (laughs) we are exposed developmentally to those individuals as our parents you know my father was exposed to his father and his trauma and the impact that that had on him um and it certainly impacts upon how the individual relates to themselves and the world around them whether the world is experienced as a safe place mm. um whether the individual can engage fully in a life um, or feel that they still have to engage in survival or are very grateful for for what they have Um, and generationally it 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 filters through Mm. (laughs) that you're exposed to these world attitudes about your environment and yourself um, and it's understandable that um, those attitudes just wouldn't be lost really
0: yeah it's it's I suppose it's one of those things isn't it that as you get older eventually you realize that your your parents aren't these like godlike superheroes that don't have anything like wrong with them and everything's perfect and they know exactly what to do all the time um and yeah it just you know it's really important to to highlight the the impact that your kind of family can have on you and it, it's also really important i think people get apprehensive about it because they're worried that we're trying to blame people or like say that they're bad people for you know traumatizing you or whatever but you know everyone's human we're all gonna you know nobody knows nobody there's no book on how to or maybe there is actually but you know there's no um way you're not taught how to be a parent properly and like, how to do everything and, and there's nothing that can prepare you fully for it so there are going to be little mistakes and that's just part of being a human um but yeah i think i think it's a really important thing to, to pick up on.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's there's a lot of fear um, and, and misunderstanding, really, that psychoanalysis is about blaming our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's often the line, isn't there? You know, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father. Um, but it's it's um, <laughs> it's it does have an impact. Um, but this isn't about blaming. This is about understanding and insight. And of course, like you say. It, There's very few parents that that try and harm their children. There's very few. (laughs) You know, we are human. That we all have parts of us that are are wonderful, but we all have parts of us that are more challenging as well. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not just about exploring mum and dad it's also about exploring their parents as well so how did that filter down into their parenting because of course we're all a product of our parenting and our environments and and other people around us as well you know in psychoanalysis we don't just look at mum and dad we look at other important figures in our lives and other important relationships in our lives
0: mm, yeah and it is it's a it's an ever complex thing um and I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I've got more questions, but I feel like we're going to end up down a, a complete like, opposite rabbit hole of what we're going to be speaking <laughs> about here. So uh, I want to just, I also want to touch on quickly, um, you mentioned about going into rowing and lightweight rowing and how there are certain kind of normalized behaviors that actually would be, you know, potentially even a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder, at least disordered eating to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, I try and talk about a lot in my own minds. And I, I personally think it's, it's similar in a lot of the fitness or gym community as well. And the, you know, the, the idea of uh, how, how much your, your body checking and certain your force feeding and, and restriction and the, the, bulk and cut diet, you know, severe restriction followed by like, you know, gorging and binge eating. Um, and I remember in your book, cause it's something that people always talk to me about. And I always I try and figure out, but is when, when that, becomes a problem like when where's the line where that's an issue and i i I miss i'm probably going to misquote what you say in the book here but i remember you had two things that you said that probably makes it and one of them was it becomes like a clinical level of distress is that right and then there's a second one but i can't remember what that was
1: yeah yeah Um, you're absolutely right so when we diagnose clinical difficulties um we look at, so I'll probably botch this as well, in in the DSM, uh, so Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Clinical Disorders, there, there is always this line about, does the symptom presentation have significant impact upon the individual's uh, social, emotional, occupational functioning? So, so basically the first criteria is is this having an impact upon your functioning ultimately? Um, and then I think the second criteria, if I remember rightly myself, that I always consider is um, how would you feel about stopping? And if, mm. if, you're f- if you're filled with absolute panic at the thought of stopping, um, engaging in these behaviors, then that's telling us something as
0: well yeah and that that i think i it's ringing a bell for me anyway so i feel like you've got it i feel like you did get it there okay. <laughs> um and it because i remember thinking about it because the thing that i always think of is um it's the mo- it's kind of it's the most extreme version of a gym person that you can get which is bodybuilding in my opinion um and you know bodybuilders when they go to do a show they're you know, they they go to these points where they're training more often. They're doing more cardio. They're being more restrictive, and it will have, or usually would have, a significant level of distress um, on that mm. person because you know they're stressed, and it's going to affect their occupation and their their relationships and all sorts of things. Um, yeah. But I suppose in in that case, then it's it's the level of discomfort that would happen if you had to stop or if something happened to like stop it. And if if it is that your world would just turn into catastrophe if things had to slow down or stop that that's when it would potentially be a problem. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's very helpful to identify that, but I guess the the next extension of that debate is whether or not the individual is ready to um, connect with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and identify that it is causing them distress. um, Because, of course, you or I might see it with people that we work with, but ultimately, if they don't see it yet themselves, we're in a very challenging position because psychology isn't something you can do to someone. You know, someone has to come into the room and recognise that they themselves are distressed by this. Otherwise, they can't engage in the process of psychology or a psychological therapy. Mm. Um, so that's when we get into a very sticky situation where we can be observers or bystanders and think this isn't healthy. Um, but ultimately, the individual themselves are still engaging in it in a way that's functional for them.
0: Mm. How do you think we we get more people to or how do we increase the likelihood that people will have that level of that like introspection or at least attempt to
1: well i think um education is always important um and we're, we're getting better at that um but um we're still not there <laughs> um i i i always talk about wanting to make people educated consumers of well-being intervention and mental health intervention um i think our culture isn't quite at the place where um having a psychologist um in, in your list of numbers is something that's common um, mm. i think it's much more common in america to have a therapist um, in your list of numbers um, and something that you move in and out of throughout your life um I think it's a white gosh, it's a big discussion, isn't it, in terms of what needs to change culturally. And there's a chapter in the book about that. Um, but I think the more that we talk about this, um, the better we are going to get with it. But ultimately, we do need to develop that debate. It's it's not just about athletes saying that they have mental health problems now, because we, we've been in that place for a few years now. And yes, that's helpful, but um what we need to do is we need to advance that debate and say, okay, so I'm an athlete that's had a mental health disorder and this is what I'm doing about it. So mm. that then takes it to the next stage that says that there are X, Y, Z options to help you with this. And this then becomes normalized. And so people can then recognize and see themselves in these individuals and think, ah, so maybe I need to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Um... So not only yeah, we're at that stage now where I think people are we're at least people are starting to recognise that athletes have kind of have some kind of mental health struggle and that and that's getting better, especially with the you know, the Olympics and, and you know, there were several athletes that they came forward and different things that was going on. So um yeah, it is it's now it's about like you were saying. We've shown, we've allowed people to maybe identify themselves in the athletes, but now we need to have them identify and then be led towards, you know, getting help or, or or something. Um, And it's something I talk about on the podcast quite often is I I see a counsellor every week. Um, And I, as far as I'm concerned, I want to see a counsellor for the rest of my life. Um, I'm just, it will just become, it will become, you know, monthly or, you know, uh, however I end up arranging it because I don't see it as a, it's not. Um, fixing it's developing I I see as you know I'm I'm learning more about the way I think and the way I feel and it's just it's just nice to have someone who is paid to listen to me for an hour and you know and just like never I can say anything I want and I I personally think it's it's something definitely not to be ashamed of in fact I think it's to be a proud of because I'm I'm putting that effort in to learn about myself
1: Yeah definitely and you know I'm a psychodynamic psychotherapist I you know in order to become a psychodynamic psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst you have to have been on the couch yourself you know and so I I had a couple of years down in London when I was training and then I think I've had about six years up here up north as well and like you say it's then a process of moving through life uh, hopefully therapy teaching those skills for you to tolerate things that happen in life because of course even once you've had therapy things still happen in life we we still are presented with life events or struggle or things that are uncomfortable but hopefully therapy will equip us with those skills to manage those things but then if we need to move back in at certain stages we have someone there who knows us and it's it's a wonderful thing to do like you say to go back in and learn more about yourself and
0: learn those additional skills to move forwards yeah yeah and it's it's it's, um uh, we'll come to the final three questions but something I always say at the end of one of them is that I think when um people have had mental health struggles obviously it's not a nice thing to go through but I think you you gain you gain that introspection and that that level of like self-awareness from it that's so positive when you come out of it that you you understand you know what you, you understand how your thought you understand how thoughts work in general and how your emotions work more than someone who hadn't gone through that would.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I I often say that in order to engage in in psychoanalysis or psychodynamic work, um, you you don't have to be significantly mentally unwell well, you know, it can often just be an analysis in terms of who am I, my personality, my relationships, to learn about ourselves mm. um, and to have that insight in terms of how we relate to the world, ourselves and people around us. And that yeah. can be a real yeah. asset.
0: De- definitely. Um anyone listening at home, please take if you're going to take anything away from this the original 15 minutes or how long we've been speaking, that is yeah. one big point. And as I've as I've mentioned, there we've been speaking fifty minutes, and I have barely even gone through any of the questions. So I'm going to bring us back. Um, so tell us about your new book. I've been speaking about the book that I've read, and we've spoken about little bits of it. Um, the book is called Skewed to the Right: Sport, Mental Health, and Vulnerability. Um, what is the inspiration about behind it, and and what yeah, what is it about?
1: Yeah. So um, skewed to the right is um, a collection of seven stories of uh, professional sports people that have experienced uh, mental health difficulties. Um, And it's a very, um, very open book, (laughs) in terms of people being very open and generous with sharing their stories, uh, details of their intimate personal lives and their development to allow us to work together to deliver chapters that tell their stories through um, a psychological and psychoanalytic lens so that we can understand better how our sports people are more vulnerable to developing mental health difficulties um, mm. And it's it's divided into three sections. So there's a section on weight-restricted sport uh, where I talk to a jockey and a rower. Um, The second section then focuses on the phenomena of being skewed to the right. So this is something that I've noticed in my clinical work across the years where there is a personality cluster that occurs in high-performance athletes where they are much higher on the normal distribution um, of certain personality traits than the average population. Mm. Um, so they have much higher levels of obsessionality, much higher levels of masochism, um, much higher levels of aggression um, and uh, focus. Um, and so that, that deals with um, being skewed to the right. However, there is one chapter with Nigel Owens, the rugby referee, where I look at the phenomena of being skewed to the left, where actually I also see very low levels of self-worth and acceptance within athletes. So there's always this kind of striving for better or feeling that they're not good enough. And sport gives them an object to relate to, to try and prove themselves um so there's there's a chapter in there about acceptance um and then finally a chapter on injury and retirement because um we all know that that's an incredibly challenging time for our athletes to do um at such a young age uh, often in their 20s or 30s yeah
0: yeah and i i love the kind of the the flow of the book and i i i love the the way you write is very um it's like I felt I felt like I was I was listening on a conversation almost like I felt like you were speaking to me and that's what I really liked about it is that if like I know obviously I I do this podcast where I like to speak to people about this kind of stuff and um you know, my minds originally was the reason I set up my minds was it was for these stories that we I used to collect and we have 78 different stories on the website of, of people who have gone through um different your mental health um issues or whatever within the gym and within sport and so you it kind of ticks all the boxes for me i really enjoyed listening to it and one thing that i really i really loved as well is um it's not all your uh kind of in inverted classic uh sports mental health people it's not all like runners and um you know people who are in like your weight cutting sports and stuff you you have luke stoltman in there as a strongman you know and you have a referee and you have you know your jockeys and they have all these different all these different areas and i find it so interesting to hear all the different um takes on it
1: thank you it, it was a real um hope for the book that i wanted to make it as accessible as possible because <laughs> hmm. i knew that it's it's a really tough area to think about and i know that for a lot of people it will be a very challenging read but i you know in in terms of my motivation for writing the book, I knew that this was happening in sporting culture, but I wanted to increase awareness as much as possible um, without doing it in a sensationalist way, but doing it in a very thoughtful and sensitive way, whereby we're saying we need to understand this because if we can understand it, and everyone can understand it, not, not just kind of, you know, an academic text that is inaccessible to the masses. I wanted everybody to understand it um, together so that we can think about this and, and look to make some changes.
0: Yeah, and I think I think you definitely did that. Um, like I said, like I said, it 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 does, it feels like. You know, I was sat there with you and you would, you were would like you know, speaking me through it which is really really nice um you. and you 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 mentioned these you know, these these different things that are skewed to the right and the things that are skewed to the left and hopefully we're going to touch on a few of them today and the, the one I think um the one that I think I knew the least about when I started reading the book really I feel like I learned a, a lot a lot about was uh, masochism. And you know, it's it's not something that people talk about often in kind of like general conversations. And um, people listening no. might think might think this, this conversation is about to take a turn for the um, yeah. worse, yeah. but um, it's not. <laughs> um, but no, can no. can you can you please explain the role of um, parental figures and how this intertwines with masochism?
1: Yeah, so we need to be careful, don't we? Because in popular conversation, I think people's minds go somewhere else when masochism is mentioned. Um, But if we clear up from the start what we're talking about with regards to masochism, when when I'm talking about masochism, I'm talking about individuals that turn aggression inwards towards themselves in a very punitive way, okay? Um, So... In terms of parental role, um, so you're talking to a psychodynamic psychotherapist. So the way in which we are trained, we look at various different theories. And one of the theories um, is called object uh, relations. Okay, and um, we believe that or the theory suggests that we are brought up in a developmental environment uh, with primary caregivers around us that typically will offer us a template experience okay so and this will offer us a template for other so other person other people okay and if we have parents that are hypercritical um potentially aggressive or attacking in some way um, that makes the child or the adolescent feel that they are not good enough um this becomes their familiar other template so this is what they expect of their parents but this is then also what they expect of other people so it becomes a lens through which they experience the world so um If we think about how this might play out on a daily basis, um, sometimes we might make a comment and um, somebody might respond to it um, in a way that we wouldn't expect, and the, the comment that's levied quite a lot is, oh goodness, you're so sensitive. Um, But ultimately, what that's suggesting is that potentially their other template means that they're very sensitive to something. So they may have had a hypercritical parent that always commented on their body or always commented on how they weren't good enough or how uh, they weren't fast enough in the world of sport. So when we have this other template um, that has been very critical or attacking or aggressive, some people have physically abusive parents. This then becomes internalised, and then it becomes a self-template, okay? So that's how we relate to ourselves. So if we've had hypercritical parents, there's a strong likelihood that we're going to be hypercritical of ourselves as well. Mm. And then this is how masochism can occur. So the aggression that potentially should probably be directed at the parents for treating the child in that way can become turned inwards and the individual starts to attack themselves so they become quite abusive towards themselves Um, they become very critical towards themselves and because this is a template even though it's uncomfortable they actually then try and seek this out in their other relationships and their other environments so Mm. sport might be a wonderful environment to play this out as well because you know we've all heard the common phrases, haven't we? Push through the pain barrier, fight through the wall, um, and and ultimately, sport encourages that. So it might attract a few masochists that want to push through the wall and push through the pain barrier.
0: Yeah, and I remember you. I remember. Um, I, I'm going to ask a little bit more about Michelle in a in a moment. But there's Michelle in the book, and I forget what Michelle what sport um, Michelle played. I know she's talking okay. about a, a bike ride and she was talking about how she would push through the pain and, um, she, yeah. you know, she'd wake up in the morning and she'd say, uh, she, you know, she would, she couldn't be bothered to to go for a bike ride, but she pushed through and she knew, and then she, she said that, you know, she felt better afterwards, um, yeah. and getting to that level of pain. So that, that's kind of like that, is it? Is that, is that are you saying similar?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Michelle was cyclocross, Um, yeah, she was a cyclist. Um, but yes, it is about that. It but ultimately what we're saying is that there's an acknowledgement that in order for our high performance athletes to be great at what they do, they are gonna have to push through the pain barrier (laughs) because because we're not gonna make any Olympians if at the first sight of pain we stop when we're training, if we're if we're being honest with ourselves. But what I'm interested in is how that can, to one, if we look at it on a continuum, that can be helpful to some degree for our athletes because it shows resilience, it shows um, discipline. Um, But if we're skewed to the right too much and we go too far to the end of the continuum, um, then ultimately that pushing through the pain barrier or taking pleasure from pain can then be can then hit that clinical threshold that we've spoken about. So you've then got athletes that won't rest and recover when they're injured. Mm. You've then Mm. potentially got athletes who will self-harm or who may engage in other behaviors that demonstrate aggression towards the self, such as bulimia as well.
0: Yeah, and it it makes it so much harder as well when, because at least from from my perspective, um, being able to endure pain has also been like there's been kind of a virtue attached to that within or at least a like a moral to it and the idea of like you know like the no pain no gain slogan of the gym and you know you've got no no days off and you know you you should push through um and that whole ideology of like like um from michelle's story where you, know, you wake up and you, you might not want to do your run but you got to do it anyway because don't be a you know don't be a weak clean like, don't be a wimp you know, you've got to push through it because you'll you enjoy it that makes it so much harder because you like you're saying with it's a balance of you want to be an elite athlete you do need to push yourself but mm. it shouldn't be that you have to because I feel like that's just going to push people further and further towards that writer writer end
1: yeah yeah you're absolutely right and I think it- the book is all about balance okay so I should probably say now I I, I love sport you know it's, it's a regular feature in my life you know I'm not someone who's written this book because I hate sport um I'm someone that's written this book because it's about understanding where we should be placing ourselves on this continuum to optimize performance and well-being, and ensure that we're healthy, happy humans, and yeah. we're relating to sport in a healthy way.
0: That, that's that's such an important point because I I get the same. Like I talk a lot about exercise addiction and disordered eating and things like that, and people will say us, oh, so "You do you just hate exercise?" Well, I do. I love. I go. I go to the gym. Like I always go to the gym, and I love. I love training, and I love doing sport and um i think i guess it's uh it's an issue with society in some kind of sense that you can't if you have somewhat of an opinion you must be the whole opinion it must be you know you must be so far to one side and it's it's something that i i really struggle with and something that um yeah i guess it i think it it limits the potential for us to to progress with this because people get immediately fearful or you know um protective of their sport and exercise as soon as you start questioning even a small part of it yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely and this is all about how we relate to sport and some of us relate to it in a really healthy way whereas some of us relate to it in in quite an unhealthy way Mm. and ultimately if people struggle with these conversations It might be because there is something somewhere where they are using sport in a certain way that may be a little bit unhealthy or may relate to some of their defence mechanisms as well. So it's Mm. tough to look at this stuff. And I and I think we just have to acknowledge that. and understand that we're all at very different places within this journey and learning about ourselves and how we relate to ourselves and then how we relate to everything else in our world. I mean, sport is just one thing that we relate to, but if we're relating to sport in this way, we'll be relating to everything else in our world in a
0: similar way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that is that's such an important thing. Yeah, I suppose it has a knock-on effect on everything in your life, the way that you view things and the way that you approach things. Um, and that kind of reminds me, I, I wanted to say that you know, when I read um, your bit on masochism, I kind of saw some of it in myself because um, I, so I, I have personal experience with um, binge eating disorder, or at least you've been know, binging behaviours. Um, I, I i have kind of self-diagnosed myself with muscularity oriented disorder eating because it hasn't technically a diagnosis yet. It's just research into it. And it's something that I really resonate with from my personal experiences. Um, but I used to, I, I used to do a lot of binging, and I would always kind of hide away, and I would um, binge eat away from my family and my parents. And and I, 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 it's something I spoke about with my counselor in the past. Is I would get some kind of like, almost like a a sense of pride of, um, like are like, I'm, I'm doing this without my parents knowing. And um, I, if they find out they're going to be like a bit annoyed with me, or they're going to be like, whatever. And it I almost felt like a way of, of torturing myself. And and when, after I read your book about masochism and stuff and how it might be something that you're turning towards them if you're annoyed at them in some kind of way. Um, it's something I resonate with, because I think sometimes if I got annoyed with my parents, my first thing would be, I'm going to go binge eat and you know, punish myself. For something that isn't you know necessarily down to me, I'm not. And just for the record, I'm not in any way trying to um, like you. Know, my parents, my parents are both lovely people, but um, you know, it's just I think it's something that has I resonate with myself.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I, I think it's tough, isn't it, to bit to get angry at your parents? <laughs> you know, well, for some people <laughs> tougher than others, but it's it's not uncommon that we struggle with anger and and we struggle with seeing it as an emotion that all of us experience and actually it's quite healthy to express anger but i think again it's an area where people are quite frightened to express their anger because what's the response going to be um but it's in it's you know it's interesting that you've identified that in yourself because you're right that if People would struggle to express that anger towards other people. Then it would become turned inwards because anger just doesn't go away. It's still there. It needs to be expressed in some way.
0: Yeah, and it was actually so as I mentioned previously, um, we used to do the My Mind stories and have all these stories online. And um, I wrote my own one um, as like a year. I think it was like when My Mind was a year old, and what I spoke about was with my first counselor. Um, we worked on a lot of, about me understanding what anger was because I'd never really got to grips or understood what I, what angry was for me. I just felt a negative emotion and I just felt like shame or sad. I just, I, I, I never learned what angry was. And um, so it's interesting you're saying that's a, you, for me, I think what it was was I would feel anger and, and I would immediately turn that to, oh, it's my fault. You um, know, it's, it's, I need to be ashamed of myself. Um, And something I spoke, I speak about, um, I think on a previous pod, and I think I wrote about it in the post is um, anger obviously has a lot of negative connotations with it, but actually it's such, it's such an important emotion because it's the ability to say like, it's that, like, fuck that person. It's their fault. It's not my fault. You know, it's the ability to be like, you know, it's not all down to me, Like that person was wrong. and, And that's a really good thing to be able to be able to feel.
1: Yeah absolutely you know it's it's the uh, um it's one of the most important markers of adolescence as a developmental mm. stage you know we should be getting angry <laughs> you know there's a real important stage within our emotional development where we should be protesting and mm. we should be getting frustrated and as much as that's difficult for parents to manage that's the development of the adult that's about saying no you know I don't agree with you this is my position and I'm a separate person um and and there's aggression involved in separating as well Mm. um so it's a hugely important
0: emotion Mm. and I think that's that's something that I learned a lot in in my time in counseling is the the fact that negative emotions aren't like aren't Obviously, they're called negative emotions. So you think that they've got these terrible, like terrible, um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of the word, but they're attributed with this like horrible thing. And you should try and stop having them at all costs. But actually, it's okay to feel like down and it's okay to feel stressed and it's okay to feel angry. And it's just, it's just when it's taken over your life that it can be a problem. But, you know, it's something actually I spoke about on the most recent podcast with a coach who we had on Daniel Robinson and we were speaking about on that that um, you know what is the ideal level of men- what is ideal mental health it's not a happy happy rainbow sunshine all the time it is to to be able to control like ups and downs and experience them and that's okay
1: yeah yeah definitely so in psychoanalysis we talk about striving for good enough okay mm. <laughs> so so if people walk out and there's an appreciation that life is good enough and it's full of good it's full of challenging and we can tolerate that then then i'm happy
0: mm, that's brilliant that's like a slogan just aim for good enough <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. so uh i i also wanted to touch on you mentioned how the kind of latter end of the book you talk about um retirement and injury in sport and it's something that i've um i um yeah I hadn't read much into and, and especially you spoke about the I'm I hope I'm pronouncing this right Bowlby and or mm-hmm. um, and Park's stages of grief um mm-hmm. could you explain what they are and because you said that you use it a lot in your kind of like clinical practice at least in the book um and and how that relates to sport and retirement? how do they actually work yeah so
1: um you did say it right yeah um <laughs> and parks um it's it's one of the earlier um models of grief um that have then been developed uh further by other individuals but um the reason that we look at grief when we think about injury and retirement is because injury and retirement for athletes are characterized by loss so mm loss of physical performance it might be loss of cognitive performance if it's a concussion or a head injury um loss of financial stability potentially loss of identity um,
0: that's a huge one identity
1: huge yeah huge uh, loss of the dream you know for mm. some of these athletes uh th- this has been their dream since they were a child and they've actually managed to execute it and then suddenly it's lost so um injury and in retirement is characterized by loss and you know hopefully all all being well you and i will have to confront that in our 60s <laughs> like like many people that but, but our sports people have to confront it in their 20s or 30s um and the stages of uh model, just to summarize them, is shock and numbness at the start um, when you lose something. So, you know, I'm afraid to say uh, this is a career-ending injury. You will no longer be playing football. Okay. First stage is shock. Second stage is disorganization and despair. So this, this is the messy emotional stage. And I use the term messy because Um, You know, there's all manner of emotions, depression, anger, um, upset, grief, uh, they're all flying around at this time. Um, And then uh, you move to disorganisation and despair um, and then reorganisation and recovery. Okay, but I I guess it's important to acknowledge that this isn't necessarily a linear process. You know, when I work clinically with people, there's bouncing around all over with these stages. Um, And it can be that at, at one point you're okay with the physical decline of your body, but you're really not happy about the loss of identity. So, you know, for various components of loss, you can be at different stages within this model. Um, But I I think for me there's two stages that um, are really tricky for um, our sports people and uh, this directly relates to um, a point that I've already made about how um, for many of us when we're younger we have a dream about what we want to become. Um, You know, I don't know if you've got any young children around you, but but at the age of three, four, five, that they're starting to say about what they want to be. And they're starting to say about how they dream about being an astronaut or a pop singer or a ballet dancer. Um, And some of them might even say football player. Um, But ultimately, sadly, for a lot of these kids, (laughs) They, they, they don't make those dreams, um, but it's a fantasy that they have when they're younger and they play that out and they get dressed up. Um, but then the bubble is burst. Um, but they realise at that point, at a very young age, that they're not omnipotent, they're not all-powerful, and they can't make these things happen all the time. And that's a significant stage of emotional learning and development. But for our athletes, if they always fantasized about being the professional footballer and then that dream became a reality, they haven't yet had that bubble burst. So they Mm. are riding a wave of feeling that they're pretty powerful. (laughs) And sadly, when injury or retirement strikes, they then have to do that stage of emotional development much later. Mm. And That's when we can often see these adolescent kind of presentations at this point, Um, because it gets a bit messy. And we also have to remember that for a lot of our sports people growing up, if they're academy football players um, or swimmers that have grown up um, in the pool, they've been held in a stage of childhood which we call latency which is all about order regime structure being told what to do and they're not often encouraged to develop their own mind and that's what you do in adolescence so in a sense we're also creating sports people that have to have delayed adolescence and adolescence is characterized we've already said about protest exploration Um, And that's when it gets messy. Um, And of course, we're kind of, that's when we see the difficulties with alcohol, with drugs, at injury or retirement, and it's almost as if these athletes are having their adolescence at a delayed stage because they've never been allowed to do that yet. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the stage of disorganisation, really. And you know, you should be exploring. That's what we do in adolescence. We are disorganized. We try this hobby. We try this. We we go out drinking. We work out whether we enjoy it or whether actually the hangover is too bad, and we don't want to do that again. You know, that's what we do. Um, but ultimately, our sports people have to do that stage of disorganization much later on.
0: Yeah, and I suppose it. Yeah, like you said, it kind of makes sense, is not it? Because you you're you're not learning these things that you you're supposed to learn when you're a kid because and you you people in the book how you'll kind of for a lot of people the coach can almost become like a parental figure so it's almost like you've yeah. got this parent and um you know a coach's job is to control what you're doing for like you know, to, a, to a degree anyway you really they should be in my opinion like suggesting things but a lot of coaches are you know this is how this is what you need to do this is what you need to eat this is when you sleep this is you know everything you yeah. do I'm telling you what to do. And that can be their life up until they're thirty and they retire, you know. And and then all of a sudden, they you know the coach doesn't care about them anymore. At least not as much as they did. And you know all the all these things kind of go into turmoil. So it's no wonder people are turning to things. And the the thing that comes to my mind is um, like boxers and and like fighting athletes who so often end up with like really bad injuries because you know, the amount of fighters who Retire and then come back and then retire and then come back, um. And it kind of, it kind of made. I think it was Mike Tyson. I remember, um, reading something about, or oh, it was somebody anyway. And they spoke about how, you know, they just they you feel this sense of loss of identity because you were, you know, Mike Tyson was his as he self-proclaimed baddest man on the planet. You know, he was he was the this. You know, he was he was everything, and he did it from such a young age, and he was you know he just destroyed everyone, and then he you know, tried to stop, or I think he got beat, or you know, we have to stop for a while. And then you know, you just lose everything. And I think he's fighting now. He's like in his 60s or something. And he's and he's trying to organize fights again with other um you know old boxers. And yeah, it's kind of it makes sense when you put it that way.
1: Yeah. And and it's really um it's really tough for, for sports people to come out of sport and recognize that sport is something that they did it's not who they are mm. and you know there's, there's a whole area of preventative work that could be doing with our sports people really that we're missing and there's this there's this old belief isn't there that in order to be successful you just have to focus on your sport everything should be sport sleep diet you know regime training and you know, I, I talk about the tower versus the pyramid. And but ultimately, if you're gonna stack the sport blocks and it's on a very narrow sport base, you're just you're just building a really high tower of sport, 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 sport that's gonna collapse. Because mm. if sport collapses, you've got nothing else to hold you up. Whereas if you've got a pyramid which is full of relationships, hobbies, interests. Um, a recognition that you're a parent or a sister or a friend, um, then if if the sport block gets pushed out by injury, then you've got a lot of other stuff that's still allowing you to stand tall and feel okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's again, it's, it's something that um, I I used to speak about in my mind a lot. Of, I used to always talk about um, these definitions of ourselves and how we you know we we all have our, our narratives of who we are and i think a lot of athletes then their whole narrative is is i am an athlete i'm going to be a really good athlete or i am a really good athlete and that's and that's it um, and i think you know, it's just, it's the same again in the in the gym community in the kind of fitness community is you know, you look on fitness social media and you know, all the fitness influencers and and you know, bodybuilders and all these people all they post on their instagrams is them training them eating and them posing and then you know, you, you know everything to do with the gym that's all they talk about on there maybe it is all they do in their life and you know, maybe that's that's an issue in itself but um so it's easy to look at that and think that's what I have to do to be as you know to be like them if I want to be like them but I think mm-hmm. actually when you delve into the the really successful athletes the ones who who do really well and in, and in, in, um in sport I think I think they actually have other things going on and I think I spoke about this on, a, on another podcast but you know there are i'm really big into fighting sports um so I, I i i like for a big example for me is khabib um, N- and golf i was never announced to to say, i'm not very good with last names um and he's like a you know, really I, I don't know if you know i'm sorry if i'm if you already know this but people who don't know um he's a ufc fighter um undefeated really like he's from um uh, Kazakhstan or Kazakhstan. Um and he's his whole thing is that he trains you know, he's, he's all his life he's been wrestling and fighting and it's all he ever does and it's all he ever talks about and but even he has like business sides and he has his family and there are videos of like him here you know, with his friends and his, his family and stuff and I think pe- people just think oh if I want to be like Khabib I've got to only think about wrestling, only think about fighting, only do everything. But even him, the, the, the arguably best of all time, he also has relationships. And I think the reason he's become so good, the reason he's been able to maintain such hard training and always being you know, really into it is because he's allowed himself to have, like you say, that pyramid. He's got other things that he balances in with his narrative in with his definition of himself. And that's what is really important for people. You, know, If someone's listening try I think it's so important to try and expand that base like you say make that pyramid rather than a tower um by you know coming up with anything really yeah
1: and I think the thing which um sports people are really bad at as well and and I include myself in this is that we we often define ourselves by what uh we do or what the numbers say because Mm -hmm. that's what we've experienced throughout our sporting lives where we are measured as a product of the numbers, whether they're numbers on the scale, numbers on the rowing machine, numbers on the stopwatch. And I think as an extension to this, it's not just about the pyramid of what we do. It's also about understanding that we are much more than what we do. We are also humans that have values and character traits that people will want to be around so Mm. whether that's because we're kind or whether it's because we're funny um, and that's not because we play sport that's not because we're successful at this or we can run 100 meters in this time it's because we're just nice friendly people Mm. and we we have to remember that as well we're not just measured by what we do because we experience that a lot in sports people are also interested in you and will see value in you and worth in you because of who you are as a person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it's important to have, um, or it's, it's fine to have external things that you, you look to, 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 you know, to make yourself feel good and to, to respect yourself or, you know, whatever you want to say. But I think, yeah, the, the main core of it or the base, I think, I think it's almost like the, the, the solid structure of who you are should be the internal things, the things like you say, your personality traits, and the, the yeah internal. Um, I think of the way phrase um internal things that feed into your self worth. It's okay to have little bits of external ones, but the main the main source of it should be internal. I think I, I butchered that really badly, but I think I got the point across. <laughs> no, no.
1: No, no, that's great. It, it, it's the core values, isn't it? And, you know, I don't just work with sports people, I work with individuals that have had brain injuries, um, spinal injuries, and huge things to adjust to. But even with those significant injuries, what remains is the person underneath that. And those mm. values are not lost. So through injury and retirement, we have to keep coming back to, what is it that's not been lost? You know, you're still a gentle, kind person that, you know, is funny and loving and values other things. And that remains, and that that's important to remember.
0: Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um... Amy, we're we're getting near to the end of the podcast now. Um, I'm going to have to start bringing it to a close. So we have a new segment on the podcast. People who listen um, uh, regularly will will know a bit about this, but people who don't, I'm going to explain it a few more times. Um, This is the devil's advocate. It's the devil's advocate. So the devil's advocate is basically a new segment that I brought in, which is because usually when I in, invite people on the podcast, it's because I think they're interesting and cool. And I agree with what they, what they think and feel. So I often like with this podcast, I'm, I'm just going, yeah, that's amazing. Oh yeah. You're so cool. Oh yeah. Then let's talk about the things that you do. And um, I wanted to add in something that that's a bit controversial and disagrees with the person's stance just to kind of, you know, get that conversation going from there. So Today's devil's advocate question is, or um, it's more of a statement. No, no, it's a question. Um, Athletes don't need a psychologist. Back in the day, they just pulled their socks up and carried on. What's the point?
1: Yeah, it's a good one because we hear it a lot, don't we? Um, So I've been thinking about this. Um, I think it depends on what we mean by pulling up our socks, okay? Mm. (laughs) So um, if we mean, and and we've alluded to this already, haven't we, Um, if we mean that by pulling up our socks, we have an internal resilience to tolerating things that are uncomfortable and we can pull on some helpful coping skills to get us through some struggles then, yes, you're quite right. What's the point? You don't need a psychologist. It's great that you've got that bunch of coping skills in your armory and you're able to rely on them. However, if we are suggesting <laughs> that we should be pulling up our socks in a way where we are engaging in behaviors that are clinically distressing or where we are using defense mechanisms in a way which are unhealthy or have significant fallout for the individual then um we do need a psychologist um, mm. whether or not that individual is ready to engage with a psychologist we've spoken about that as well is another matter but if they are ready to engage with a psychologist and Uh, by just pulling up their socks and carrying on we're just putting a plaster over something and we're not dealing with something then that's actually more detrimental Um, we know that it will always come back and you will always have a fallout so we need to deal with it now um so you do need a psychologist um and I'd also I mean it was an interesting question because I'd also reflected that you know sports culture is changing um people do ask these questions because it's something new isn't it um but you know there's so many new positions in sports if you look at the world of football there's tactical analysts i mean how long have they been around you know they never used to be part of the team uh, nutritionists never used to be part of the team but now they are and now psychologists can be part of the team and if we have a literature base that means that we can enhance people's lives through insight and understanding and it means that they're better in terms of well-being and mental health then why shouldn't we have a psychologist
0: excellently put i don't even i don't need to add anything to that um thank you very much um so amy at every single one of my podcasts i ask every guest a final three questions are you ready for the first question
1: I am. Are these quick fire round questions? Are
0: they- <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, yes and no. They can be if you want to be. Um, I will allow thinking okay. time. Um, okay. <laughs> the first one is name a person, real or fictional, who inspires you in your life
1: okay, this is going to be entirely predictable, isn't it? Um, But it's going to have to be Freud, really, isn't it? I mean, he's probably been the biggest inspiration. Um, I think as well, what I love about the work of Freud is that it's over 100 years old, but with new advances in neuroscience and neuroimaging, we're just demonstrating that his theories And his methods work at a kind of structural and chemical level within the brain, and I I think that's wonderful. So it's going to have to be Freud.
0: (laughs) Yeah, great, great one. I actually I actually had a um, he may be listening, but I was speaking to a friend um, recently about Freud, and he was saying that he doesn't get why why people think he's such a like a, a big deal. And I was saying how he he was basically like he he's like nobody. To a, to a degree, people didn't realise that talking about your problems could actually help things, and he just came up with that. Like off, Obviously, he didn't just do it off the top of his head, but he was the person that, you imagine that nobody thinking that, and then someone saying, yeah, actually, here it is, and this is why, and this is how, and then developing all this theory behind it. It's absurd. Like He's a, obviously an absurdly smart human.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, just in terms of how yeah, it keeps on giving with advances with um, neuroscience, and it's it's incredible, really. Yeah, Mm, way ahead of its time.
0: (laughs) Mm. Um, Okay, so question two is a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know, positives came from it.
1: Yeah, so I talk a little bit about this in the book. Um, I don't go into too much detail, but um, it, it's going to have to be that time when I was rowing at, at the highest level that I rowed at. Um, it, it, it happened at a time when my mum was physically very unwell, and I think I was relating to sport in probably not the best way. Um, and it was a very challenging time. Um, but of course, everything that's followed um has meant that it's been an incredibly useful time in my life. Um, so yeah, it would have to be that time.
0: Yeah, and um, thank you for sharing that. And and that's the you know, I said earlier in the podcast how I always say, I think you um I always say at the end about how people who go through um struggles actually come out with with other like positives. And that's the reason why I love that question so much. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And and i hope people listening at home will will see what you've done with the struggles that you went through and and will be inspired by that so yeah question 3 the final question a phrase to live by
1: uh, well it links to what we've just spoken about doesn't it and i i truly believe that you just have to trust the process and i know that's hard for people that um yeah i live by it and you have to do
0: it trust the process trust the process amazing thank you and um, well amy thank you so so much for coming on the podcast today i hope you had a good time
1: yeah it's been great to talk to you thank you for inviting me on
0: well thank you so much for coming on it's been a really good conversation and i think there's going to be a lot of things that people can take away from this um thank you everyone listening at home as always for getting through this podcast with us and i hope to see you at the next one bye thank you so much for listening to that episode here at my minds we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast so please if you can give it a share each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that also, if you want to check out myminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.